0: This is Defender Radio. Defender Radio is brought to you by the Association for the Protection of Fur-Bearing Animals. It's the week of January 23rd, 2017, and this is Michael Howie, welcoming you to episode 413 of Defender Radio. Stopping wildlife conflicts, protecting individuals, and ensuring coexistence can be a struggle after development happens. But it can be a whole lot easier if you incorporate it into the planning stages. And that's exactly what Dr. Lael Parrott hopes to accomplish. The UBC professor recently spoke to the Kelowna Capital News about her work in the region to create wildlife corridors as part of the development and expansion of the area, particularly surrounding precious agricultural and natural places. By combining variables, such as how individual animal species behave at specific times of year and interact with other variables, like detailed geographic information and other data, then running it all through a computer, Dr. Parrott can reasonably predict how wildlife will react and respond to various planning options. Her work has the impressive potential to mitigate existing conflict too, In Whistler, Dr. Parrott's team is using the same system of modeling to determine if electric fencing placed in specific areas on the landscape could reduce bear conflict and, ultimately, save the lives of animals. To discuss this fascinating work, the system she uses, and why advocates need to be aware of this modern planning tool for wildlife conflict prevention, Dr. Parrott joined Defender Radio. Could you tell me a bit about the work you do, just sort of in general, because it's a very interesting, uh, uh, I'd say almost application uh, of science from what I've read on your uh, your faculty page and in a few media articles you've been involved with. So how do you sort of describe what it is you do?
1: What I try and do is integrate the knowledge we have from different, different disciplines to answer the really complex questions about landscape scale management. And so many people study water, hydrology, agricultural systems, soils, different species, and the ecology of those species, but very few people integrate all of that knowledge together to understand how our human activities, and specifically ecosystem management and conservation, impacts all of those different sectors. And so, a lot of the work I do is is about taking a systems level approach to understanding the landscape as a human environment system, looking at how all of those different things interact together. One of the things that that I do also is in, involves bringing all of these different people together around the table because often the different disciplines don't speak together, and often the way that we govern the landscape. It sort of divides it up as well. So we have people working in the Ministry of Agriculture looking at the agricultural part of our landscape, people working in Ministry of Forest or the equivalent looking at the forest part of the landscape. And often those sectors don't communicate well with one another.
0: That's definitely interesting. And uh, I, I find the, the concept fascinating. In some of the interviews I've done, uh, speaking with uh, with scientists and researchers, uh, the 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 what I would call almost ongoing frustration of trying to not only measure but decide what variables should be included uh, particularly in studies of conflict Um, so Adrian Travis did a recent study and it was was something of a literature review and he looked at all of the studies that are out there most of the studies uh, regarding human wildlife conflict and lethal control um, and how most of the studies that are there, and again, there are very few, uh, don't take into account lots of different variables. And as a result, uh, some of their conclusions are very, probably very inappropriate. Um, so how, and before we get into the the sort of the reason we're talking, this, this article that I read, how do you try and, I mean, fit it all onto paper or in your head, I, especially when you're talking road ecology or how you know, uh, environment interacts with, as you said, agriculture, or forestry interacts with stream movements. How do you manage all of those variables?
1: Mm. I take a dynamic modeling approach, where basically I try and recreate the landscape in my computer, much like you would in a video game, where I have a a spatial representation of the landscape in which I bring in all of the different data layers that we have and we're fortunate in Canada specifically to have really good data describing vegetation cover, human land use, agriculture, locations of water bodies and and rivers and wetlands. We have really good data describing our landscape so I bring all of those different data layers together into the computer to to represent the landscape and then I develop rules about how humans move around in the landscape and how animals move around in the landscape and simulate in my computer how all of these things interact together. And it's in doing that, then I can explore different scenarios. Like, for example, if humans are walking along a trail and we know that Uh, wildlife, a particular species, will flee from humans if they find themselves within a distance of 80 meters, for example, then I can explore what will happen if we put a new trail into this area and humans walk along it. How often will there be a wildlife encounter? How often will that affect where wildlife move? And over the long term, how might that affect the usage of the landscape by the wildlife? That would be one example of a thing you could do with this kind of
0: model. That's it's it's remarkable. Uh, it's it's just this ongoing series of kind of if then statements. Very much so. How what is the predictive success or the success of your modeling? Is there a way to measure that?
1: Yes. What we usually do is develop rules, like you say, if then rules based on our best knowledge of of how animals and humans use the landscape. Usually that knowledge is, comes from having, often it comes from animals that have been collared and for which we then have uh, geo data, so on how they've moved, and then we can deduce rules from that. Often it comes from people's understanding of animal movement, so sometimes speaking with uh, trappers or with ecologists who who know that species well, sort of using their understanding to validate our rules as well. And then what we will do is run the model for a known scenario, an existing case, and make sure that the animal movement we're observing or their patterns of use on the landscape correspond with our current data.
0: You're, You're pretty much lining them up.
1: Exactly. Looking for spatial patterns and looking at, for example, if a black bear selects a certain type of vegetation um, preferentially in its movement on the landscape, it might prefer different types of vegetation cover uh, relative to the availability of that vegetation on the landscape. We can explore how well our model captures that as well and make sure that what we have corresponds to what we know about how that species uses the landscape. Before we start exploring... The alternate what-if scenarios for which we don't have data.
0: That's that's really interesting, um, and I'm just thinking about in gaming possibilities now. <laughs> um, so um, that's it's and I gotta imagine that's the same kind of technology and modeling that we then see talking about weather and patterns, um, probably in uh, ecology of city planning or in case of emergency management. Like, is it is it used in all of these different areas?
1: It is. So the, this is a technology, the kind of spatial modeling that I do, and we call it agent-based modeling because our, we, our, our humans and our animals are considered agents. Um, that kind of modeling is used across the disciplines and is becoming more and more popular. And it is very much like gaming because we are representing, in our case, they're agents rather than avatars in a simulated two or three-dimensional world the difference would be that we try and understand the underlying processes that give rise to the patterns that we see on the landscape we try and understand the rules that make things move we don't prescribe scenarios we don't prescribe a storyline like you might in a game we let those things emerge in our model
0: that's that's just incredible um and and the, the application you're using right now that that's uh, sort of drew me uh, uh, into contacting you is in Kelowna. You're looking at how you can take these models and, and all of this data that's available and dev- help the city develop in a way that will reduce conflict, both through the use of mitigation strategies and corridors um, and general planning. Uh, how, how do you, first, how did you get involved in that process?
1: I reached out to some of our community partners right away when I started working at UBC because I saw that Kelowna is a classic case of a city which is developing rapidly and we're seeing a lot of urban sprawl, much of it moving up into the higher elevation, naturally vegetated areas of our valley because... The lower valley bottom is, is reserved for agriculture and much of it is in the agricultural land reserve. So I observed right away that there were a lot of trade-offs to be explored in terms of where we choose to develop and how we develop and how best the city can accommodate that development pressure and still ensure that the landscape provides the natural ecosystem services that we value here. And so I reached out to some of the environmental planners working with our regional district and also with, with some of the conservation groups in the valley to better understand what was being done already. And we identified a pressing need to have some kind of long-term vision specifically around wildlife movement through the valley and And so we've been working together to identify where are the existing places that wildlife can use and specifically where might we plan for wildlife corridors that will help animals continue to move through our valley as we develop
0: further. So a level of that's going to be prioritizing connectivity, I would imagine, between whether it's green space or forest space or however you define it. Uh, is that correct?
1: Exactly, yeah. And one of our key concerns is the lower elevation valley bottom because we have very unique ecosystems here in the Okanagan which are found nowhere else in Canada and which are only found in those lower elevation areas where we tend to develop uh, where agriculture grow and our fruit trees and wineries grow and work best. And so there's a significant conflict between the parts of the landscape that humans want to use and the parts that our wildlife need to use as well. And we're seeing a lot of decreased availability of land in the valley bottom. So one of the key priorities is to make sure that we can conserve some connectivity within the valley bottom.
0: Well, and I like the... the Priority again seems to very much be finding a way to coexist and that's something that uh, is very clearly a hot topic now and has been for many years and I think will probably uh, increase as, as a, a, uh, a news item or as a, a hot button issue is that conflict because we can only grow so much and we are growing um, and we are going to experience conflict unless we learn how to do this. Uh, We, you know, much of the science we're now looking at shows that our attempts to cull or control populations aren't always effective, Um, and in some cases outright backfire. So what else do you look at, big picture? Uh, We're talking connectivity. Um, That's one I learned about when I was working uh, in the news business and I was sort of monitoring a a growth plan. Um, But what about... um, Population levels uh, and human attractants, uh, such as waste and things like that, are all of those things being considered in this model.
1: They are to some extent, and I do have some specific projects that are related to looking at the the role of attractants and and looking at what we can do best to ensure that the wild animals stay in the natural space and are not attracted into our urban space. That said, we need to learn how to share our space, I think. We need to understand that this is the animal space as well. We're living in their environment, and they're living in ours. We both desire to live in the same places. That's often the lower elevation valley bottoms, and so we do need to respects their need for habitat and their need to move through this environment as well. And I think the best things that we can do, and this is what I'm trying to do in my research, is figure out ways that we can perhaps better spatially segregate the landscape in a way that there are appropriate places on the landscape where wild animals can move freely and that those spaces are sufficient for them so that they're not so drawn into our urban space. And obviously, we need to do our part too in terms of making sure that we don't leave out attractants. that we are controlling our garbage and the things that, you know, the fruit trees and things that will draw in black bears, for example, into our urban areas. We need to help those animals not become conflict animals.
0: Yeah, and I saw one quote, and, and this, this really caught my eye, uh, was for every 1% increase in urban area, we have a 90% chance of any given bear becoming a conflict bear. Uh, what What's that based in?
1: That's, that's right. That is a model that I developed with my students and that we're still working on that models a black bear foraging in a in an environment that has an urban area and a natural area. And we explored what would happen um, as, the, as the urban environment grows out, uh, how does that increase the chance of a bear becoming a conflict bear? And we also explored what were the best strategies to reduce conflicts between bears and humans using that model. And... What we discovered was that as the urban environment expands, the bears that are there in our model we didn't give them the opportunity to flee the landscape, so they are still in the landscape. And for every 1% increase in urban area, the probability that a given bear becomes a conflict bear increases by 90%. That's
0: incredible.
1: It is, yeah.
0: Uh, and that's, that's a really interesting look at the, the very serious impact we have on wildlife behavior with very little effort on our parts.
1: Absolutely. And part of it is because animals are habitual, and so they have their places where they live and where they forage. Just as we have our usual places where we go for a walk in the morning, the animals have their habitual places as well. And it takes them a while to readjust to changes in the landscape that have been caused by humans. So you may have observed, I I know in my neighbourhood we have deer trails through an area that's being developed now into housing, but the deer continue to follow their typical trails. And it will take a while for them to readapt and develop new routes and shift their habitat use. But during that overlap period, that's when there's a lot of potential for an animal to become, become a conflict animal and in the case of our model with the bears, our bears have a spatial memory of their environment and of the places where they like to forage. And so they continue to return to those areas until eventually they are deterred away or become conflict animals.
0: Now, something I, I, I'm i curious about. Um, now, I live in uh, Hamilton in southern Ontario, and I've spent a lot of time in Toronto. Uh, we've got a lot of raccoons, if you haven't heard. Um and looking out my window, well, there's two little anecdotes. One, when I was in Toronto one time, a few several years ago now, um, outside one of the University of Toronto campuses, I was watching a couple of squirrels go from a tree where students had been throwing uh, uh, seeds, and they'd go up the tree, hop onto a power line, and they were using the power line structure on this busy Toronto street to literally just run up and down the street. Uh, like over top of a city of millions, uh, as if there was no one there. Uh, so that that's one anecdote. And the other is here. And I've seen this in Toronto as well. Um, we've got a lot of these four foot fences separating yards. And you see the raccoons, and they run, 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 sort of quickly climb up and down the fence. And I always find it interesting in these discussions. Uh, I was born and raised in the suburbs. Now I live in the city. And people have this impression that they've put up a fence. So that means that's their property line. But animals, wild animals, perceive structure significantly differently than we do. Um, So I'm kind of... That's a, a secondary question is, how do you not only adapt the model to show how an animal, an individual species would perceive things so again you that's example in toronto uh where they have found this massive transportation structure um and how do you explain that to people when you're doing this model when we, when you're sitting down around the table with road ecologists or with municipal planners that they 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 simply they look at the same thing and see something different
1: the cases you describe are cases where animals have adapted to those human linear structures and are using them to their advantage and in other cases, animals will avoid those structures. So it really is, becomes very species dependent. And the best we can do with our models is represent what we know about how species respond to those structures. So if we know that an animal will preferentially use a roadway or a, some kind of linear element that we've added to the landscape, then we can simulate the animal's response to the arrival of that element in the landscape and, and see what happens as the animal uses that that element, and then see how the other creatures might react as well. So for example, wolves tend to preferentially use trails or roadways through a forested landscape, and so we can explore then how changing patterns of wolf movement in the landscape might also affect how the, the wolf's prey use the landscape and adapt their movements If we have data on how an animal responds to those elements, then we can incorporate that into the model. If we don't know how an animal will respond, then we have to put forth hypotheses and we can use the model to explore. If the animal avoids this structure, then what will the outcome be? Or if the animal adapts its movement to use the structure, what would the outcome be? And then in that case, we have different possible outcomes based on different
0: hypotheses. And how I guess the the, the, the confusing part for me then would be how you sort of explain that both to, as I said, the, the municipal planners, as well as the general public, Um particularly when we're looking at mitigating conflict. Um, so if we're discussing how, uh, again, thinking to when I got involved with, with wildlife reporting as a news reporter, uh, development of land two kilometers away influenced the behavior of coyotes. Um, and when you look at the aerial overview of the area, both two years before and then currently, you can very clearly see that like the significant change. But it was very difficult to explain that because a lot of people very simply just see them as uh um you know uh descartes, uh descartes uh uh machines uh without sentience they just do stuff so how i i guess what is the value in explaining this and what are the tools you use to explain it
1: i guess the v- the value comes in making people understand that there are cascading impacts of our actions. So, building a house in the woods, for example, seems like a little thing. We take up a little bit of the woods and we build a house, and maybe we build a road to get to that house. And it seems like a very minor impact on the landscape if you, in terms of overall surface area affected. But then if you start looking at how the presence of that house and the presence of humans around that house might affect the movement of certain animals, perhaps the coyote, for example, who no longer comes through there and, and maintains a two-kilometer radius around that house. And then the fact that the coyote has changed its movement might make the deer that the coyote eat change their movement patterns. And there are sort of cascading impacts. And when you start explaining that through storytelling to people, they start to understand and they start to realize that what was seemingly a small change in the landscape can actually have much bigger outcomes. And that can be done just through explaining that story. It can also be done through modeling. With modeling, we can then explore how the patterns of landscape use change so we can show here is where the bighorn sheep or where the black bears or where the coyotes or where the deer were using the landscape before this development occurred. And here is where they're using the landscape after. And we can see those shifting patterns.
0: Now, something I I would ask in terms of looking at more practical application, um, a lot of what It looks to me, again, based on a very cursory look at some of your your recent work, that a lot of it is in the planning phase of um, before you plan, look at this, let's figure out how things could be impacted by our decisions. Could it be done in reverse to say, and and again, you know, using an urban coyote, uh, which, as you know, can cause a lot of um, anxiety in a population of people. um, Could we then say, looking at the current behavior we can analyze what's causing this behavior and how to mitigate or change that behavior to something that is more uh, preferable both for the humans of the area and the coyote uh, themselves.
1: Mm, That would be hard to do. I think we could to some extent look at what is it on the landscape that is causing the coyote to use the urban space it would be very hard to be certain about how the coyote might learn and adapt its behavior we could ma- we could pose some hypotheses but i think it would be very hard to to say for sure whether or not that a particular coyote who's already familiar with an urban space to to know if our model could accurately depict that coyote's learning and changing its behavior, if it could change its behavior. I think it's easier to make assumptions about how wild animals move and what we can do to avoid having them come into the urban space. Once an animal is already in our space, it's we can... Ex- we would have to make a lot of assumptions about whether or not they would mm-hmm. actually leave the space, even if we gave, if we made changes.
0: Uh, so it's it's just there's again, it's one of those too many unknowables, I guess.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: Um, and it's I just I I love this because it, it's making me think of all of the sci-fi I've watched over the years. Where they say a hey, computer model this out, I'm like ah, they can't do that, uh, and you're doing that. Uh, it's, it, it really is when you try and sort of visualize how much goes into this, but what you are then able to predict. Um, It really is quite incredible. Um, And and I guess my final real question is going to be, how can we get this to be the norm? What you're doing in the Okanagan, uh, in uh, Kelowna, in looking at not only using the model, um, but in, I, I'll say selling the model, uh, the concept of the need to do this. Uh, cause again, I think the results will speak for themselves. We're seeing that now, uh, in Banff, there was just a report in, I think it was the Calgary Herald saying that they are seeing a 10 year decline in wildlife, uh, vehicle collisions, Uh, with, I think, 90% reduction in associated costs through the use of mitigation strategies like overpasses, underpasses, and fencing. Um, We talk about the cost to uh, uh, farmers who may lose a significant amount of crops to a prevalent animal or who are experiencing wildlife conflicts with their livestock. Um, And we we know a lot of measures we can put in place, but this, this modeling to prepare for it really seems like something we should be doing all the time. So how do we, sort of the general public, the advocates, the animal lovers, push our planners towards this kind of science when they are planning?
1: I think you're right in saying that through examples, people will catch on. And I'm hoping that Kelowna will serve as an example. I think we have an excellent opportunity to demonstrate to the rest of Canada and to North America about how we can develop differently. And we still have a landscape here in Kelowna which is largely naturally vegetated, although land use is uh, human-dominated and humans are prevalent on the landscape, we still have a lot of naturally vegetated areas. And so we can think differently and plan differently and ultimately demonstrate how the use of these kinds of integrated tools can help us to plan differently and grow differently and we should see some statistics coming out that are showing that our approach is successful and hopefully that will serve to incite other communities to follow suit as in terms of how can concerned citizens voice make that recommendation to their planners I think that probably most planners would embrace taking this kind of approach and it's simply a question of them not having the necessary tools to do it and so I think that there's great value in research planner collaborations that then allow the planners to acquire those tools and to explore those questions that they don't necessarily have the time to do and they don't have the expertise it's often not part of their mandate and so these kinds of collaborations make those things possible.
0: To learn more about Dr. Parrott's work visit her faculty page at ubc.ca or follow the links on this week's Defender Radio blog. That's it for this week folks until next time this is Michael Howey for Defender Radio reminding you to stay informed and stay strong.